0: You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss a Bible Belt double murder, beans in a can, and conversations with dogs. hello hello and welcome back to mystery still unsolved i am so happy to be here with all of you today today is an exciting day it's a day i've been looking forward to for a very long time we will be covering season one episode six of unsolved mysteries hosted by the love of my life mr robert stack may he rest in peace um robert robbie our romance was cut short my love but you will always be part of my heart. Even though it probably wouldn't have worked out because I just found out that you were 71 years older than me. Did you guys all know that Robert Stack was born in 1919? Over 100 years ago. That's all right, Robbie. It's all right. Age ain't nothing but a number, baby. It's okay. Um, If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for coming back. If you're new around here, well, now you know about my undying love for Robert Stack and you don't really know hardly anything else about me, but that's all right. It's kind of all you really need to know up to this point. Um, there isn't much to know about me besides that. <laughs> uh, well, and the fact that you should probably follow me on Instagram at unsolved. Um, over there, I post pictures and videos of the cases that we're covering. Um, you can comment your thoughts, theories, and opinions on our cases. You can DM me a case suggestion. You can leave me a compliment so I don't binge eat a pint of ice cream out of pure despair. Um, sometimes I pop into the stories and and we all get a chance to chat a little bit. Um, if you follow me over there on my Instagram, you'll also never miss a single episode. And if I host any giveaways or any like special events, then you're going to be the first to know about those. Um, I do have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved. I'm, full disclosure, I'm not really doing anything with it right now. <laughs> uh, but you can go there and you can binge listen to my library of episodes. They're all on there. Um, there are currently 56 episodes filled to the brim with my hot takes on some of the world's most infamous unsolved crimes or phenomenon. Before we get started with today's episode, I did want to talk about something coming up in October. (laughs) Uh, If you've been here for a while, then you know that last October I hosted a Halloween series where we discussed some seriously creepy unsolved mysteries, uh, including Jack the Ripper, Haunted Hotels, Edgar Allan Poe, and The Westfield Watcher. Uh, This year I am planning another Halloween series that will be hosted in October. Um, This one is going to have more of a focused theme than last year. Uh, This year I will be covering unsolved cases that have been turned into movies. Um, I already have some ideas of cases that I'm thinking that I'm going to cover, but I also am going to put a post in my stories, um, which is a way that you can leave your own suggestion on what unsolved crime turned movie you would like me to cover. There are four Tuesdays in October, so I need to fill them up with really great, fascinating, unsolved, mysterious topics. So hit me up with your best ideas. Now on to our episode. Like I said, we're going to be covering Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 1, Season 6, hosted by Robert Stack. The first story takes us back to summer 1977. New York City was finally waking up from a year-long nightmare. David Berkowitz was arrested on August 10th. Police had reason to believe that he was behind a series of brutal shootings that had been terrorizing New York City citizens for almost a year they had actually found a letter in david's car which was strikingly similar to the other letters that they had received from the perpetrator the letters were all signed son of sam there's no doubt about it david berkowitz had shot and killed people that's not the unsolved part of this mystery the question is is it even realistically feasible that david acted entirely alone And I'm not just talking about his little doggy friend, okay? The perception of the public was that David Berkowitz had been a lone gunman. Maury Terry, the author behind the book, The Ultimate Evil, he claims something a little bit different. He claims that the facts and the evidence prove otherwise. There were dozens and dozens of shootings and therefore dozens of witnesses. And we all know that eyewitness testimony is some of the most (laughs) unreliable evidence That you can get. But normally there are, you know, some similarities like hair color, skin color, gender. It's the other things like eye color, height, weight, specific ethnicity, what they were wearing and where they went that kind of like throw people for a loop and then we have all these paths that diverge. But the eyewitness testimony given after each shooting was vastly different. There is one sketch in particular that definitely looks uncanny to David. It really does. It depicts a man with, like, this round, cherubic face with these beady little eyes and curly brown hair. But there's another one that depicts, like, a 1970s Ken Barbie doll with a blonde mullet wig. So, like I said, vastly different different. Um, if you don't know much about the Son of Sam, allow me to do a quick recap. Um, his reign of terror began on July 29th, 1976 in an area of the Bronx referred to as Pelham Bay. Um, and It occurred at one ten am the first shootings. Uh, Two young women were hit by 44 caliber bullets while sitting in their car chatting. And um, during that shooting, one of the women actually did end up succumbing to her injuries. Um, A composite from the surviving woman is the one that I spoke to you about just barely um, that pretty much sums up David Berkowitz on paper. On October 23rd, another 44 caliber shooting occurred. There was a newspaper article written about the man who was shot and he lived to tell his story. A direct quote from the victim, his name was Carl DeNaro, is that he quote felt like his head had exploded and like the world had exploded end quote. A month later in Queens, two girls were sitting on a stoop just chatting and having fun when a man appeared from out of the shadows and shot them point blank. Both women survived. But one woman was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Uh, The surviving ladies were able to provide police with a sketch. This sketch depicted their attacker as a man with long, straight brown hair and a slim face. So, no hate to David. Actually, hate to David because he's a scumbag. But... um, david's chubby and this guy had a slim face okay um in 1977 two separate attacks claimed the lives of two young women as in the previous attacks the 44 caliber caliber bulldog revolver was used eyewitnesses were able to provide two more composite sketches and these drawings looked completely different from the first sketch they had of this guy it was almost as if honestly if you put their four sketches like side by side it literally looks like it's four different people On April seventeenth, nineteen seventy seven, another shooting occurred, just three blocks from the scene of the very first shooting. This time a handwritten note was left at the crime scene, and I'm gonna read a portion of that note to you now. It says, quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater, and he spelled women W E M O N. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat, and he put brat in quotes. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam, end quote. The city was terrified, obviously, um, especially those who lived in Queens and in the Bronx. Uh, nobody went out. A lot of like social places like bars, restaurants, clubs, They their businesses suffered because nobody really wanted to go out anymore. Um, on Memorial Day of that same year, another letter was discovered and it reads, quote, here are some names to help you along. Please forward them to the inspector. And then he like gives like this really weird brainstorm of ideas of what they can call him. Uh, The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls, end quote. So as you can see, it really is a hodgepodge of names. Sounds like a bunch of dumb frat guys that got drunk in a basement and started spitballing and brainstorming names for themselves. And maybe David was the one, you know, writing these glorious gems down on paper. Uh, The name in particular that interests me is 22 Disciples of Hell. To me, this insinuates that there might have been like 22 douchebags behind these mindless and unnecessary deaths. Finally, on July 31st, the son of Sam would attack for the last time. Stacey Moskowitz was killed. Um, her date, Robert Violante, was partially blinded from his injuries. Um, there was a witness, a 19-year-old mechanic named Tani Zaino, um, who he and his girlfriend were a witness to this last shooting. Um, he essentially says that a guy came over to the car behind him and killed them in less than four seconds. Um, he said that he'll never forget it. Um, this is the shooter who he describes as looking like the mulleted Ken Barbie doll from the 70s. During the investigation of this July 31st shooting that left Stacey dead, a parking ticket was discovered to have been issued near the scene to a Ford Galaxy. And this Ford Galaxy was owned by David Berkowitz. The police used that ticket to track down David's home. They approached the car Um, in the backseat. They spotted a duffel bag with a rifle poking out of the top of it. Then they opened his glove compartment on the passenger side and found a letter threatening another attack. And it was written in the same style and handwriting as the other letters. So, uh, the police were like, we got our man. Uh, they staked out his car, um, for a couple of hours. And finally, David walked to the car, um, with a paper bag and inside of the paper bag was a 44 caliber revolver. When they approached David in his car to arrest him, he sat calmly in the car before passively asking the police, what took you guys so long? Berkowitz confessed to all of the shootings. He claimed a possessed dog owned by a neighbor had instructed him to kill people. And I've got to tell you, during the episode, they show footage of David Berkowitz being placed into a police car, and it is eerie i'm gonna see if i can find it and share it on my podcast i will do that um because in the video david seems to be like basking in the intention of the officers the reporters and like the civilians standing nearby nearby um he grins as he like soaks it all in it almost seems like he's reveling in this like newfound celebrity status that he's found himself in uh david was sentenced to 25 years to life in attica prison in new york Tamari Terry, the author that I spoke to you about earlier, the confession seems a little too convenient. Ah, uh, he had suspicions that there were there was more to the case than the public knew than what meets the eye. Terry believes David belonged to a group, some sort of organized group or cult of killers, and It was that final shooting on July 31st, 1977 that really tipped him off to dig a little bit deeper. Maury Terry believes this particular shooting was orchestrated by at least three people. Terry says that, quote, in the very early reports, David's features were widely different from the sketch, end quote. Um, he decided to take it upon himself and he went and met with Zeno, the eyewitness to the crime who, um, was parked in the car in front of Cece and Robert. He said that while he was talking to his girlfriend, he noticed a man in his rear view mirror, just kind of standing and loitering about in the park. Uh, the man had long, straight, either blonde or sandy brown hair. The man was thin and pretty athletic looking, which, it's a complete 180 from David Berkowitz. Okay. Uh, and Zeno took a mental note of this. Uh, this is the guy who shot, ends up shooting the couple. Zeno said that when David Berkowitz was arrested a week later for the shooting, he was very confused. Zeno said, quote, all I can say is you can't get that much fatter in a week. That's all I'm saying. Um, he actually kind of says it with like, a New York accent though. So if just for your like entertainment, I can go ahead and do that for you. So Zeno said, quote, all I can say is, uh, you can't get that much fat in a week. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and he kind of chuckles to himself, uh, burn. Okay. So on 15th street is where Zeno, his girlfriend and Robert and see C- C- were parked. Two streets away on 17th, a man who looked like the shooter and another man had parked their yellow Volkswagen. Zeno says 20 minutes later he saw a yellow Volkswagen drive by them twice. At 2:05 a.m., 10 minutes later, David Berkowitz. Um, His car, the Ford Galaxy, was given a parking ticket because David had double parked. At some point, a woman living in the area was like being dropped off by a friend and they had stopped their car in the middle of the street because there was no parking near a Ford Galaxy that had just been ticketed. The two friends were talking when she saw this man uh, approach the car, take the parking ticket off of the car. He sat there waiting and watching while the cop gave other people parking tickets because there were apparently a bunch of people double double parked on the street. Um, the man seemed irritated and worried and kind of fidgety. And as soon as the cop, like, kind of, like, got a little bit further down, the man got into his car and drove up behind them, the people just kind of in the middle of the street talking. Um, he couldn't get past them, obviously, so he honked his horn at them. Uh, the woman said that she gave the man a dirty look when she got out. She thought to herself, why would anyone be in such a rush at 2 a.m. anyway? Um, hello, lady, have you ever been to New York City? Anyways, uh, she now confirms that the man that she saw in the car was David Berkowitz. Her friend, the driver, said when he left that David continued to follow the police car. Maury Terry believes that if the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was about to commit a crime, there is no way that he would be blaring his horn after just receiving a parking ticket, drawing a ton of attention to himself, especially when there was a policeman down the street giving tickets. Um, And this is certainly the case if he had a 44 caliber gun on him, because if he gets the attention of the police and the police are like, you seem crazy, I'm going to search your car, they'd find it. So, no. He believes David wasn't the one who killed that night but he was probably involved as a lookout or a watchman of some sort while his buddies did the killing because 15 minutes later stacy and robert went for a late night stroll and as they passed the park's restroom they saw a blonde mulleted man watching them this is over two blocks away from where cecilia davis had seen david and given him that dirty look for honking at them At 2.33, Cecilia took her dog out to use the bathroom. She saw David Berkowitz walking towards her. He must have parked somewhere else, and now he was walking towards the park. And he gave her, like, a little smirk as he walked by, like, kind of like, hey, I remember you. Uh, Cecilia saw David two blocks away from the crime scene. One minute later, so the shooting occurred at 2.34, as she went back into her house with her dog, she heard gunfire in the distance on the opposite end of the park. And there is no way David Berkowitz could have shot that couple because even running, it would take you two and a half minutes to get to the opposite end of the park. Fifteen seconds after the shooting, a witness claimed they saw a man of Asian descent with a long blonde mulleted Kendall wig run out of the park, get into a yellow Volkswagen, and speed away. Maury Terry believes three people were involved in this last shooting. He believes David was the fall guy for this series of shootings because he's the one that had the documented ticket that he would not be able to explain. Terry believes David didn't want to be the fall guy, but he was forced into it. Zeno doesn't believe it was David Berkowitz then, and he doesn't believe it was him now. The Queen's uh, precinct DA was informed that David Berkowitz claimed that he wasn't the only one. At the time the episode was aired, the investigation had gone from closed to back open. Robert tells us that in the next Unsolved Mysteries episode, they're going to discuss more reasons why they don't think David acted completely alone. They believe David was part of a satanic cult remember satanic cult in the 70s and 80s um they believe that he and the two brothers that he was with on that night on july 31st were part of this organization this 22 disciples of hell and it just so happens that these brothers who fled the scene in a yellow volkswagen were sons of a man a man named sam so this episode ends up being a little bit of a bummer because they don't like wrap it up. It's like a be- to be continued, uh, portion of the show. Um, and I'm going to finish covering it next week when we talk about season one, episode seven of unsolved mysteries. I don't normally cover two unsolved mysteries cases like back to back, but I don't want to like leave you guys hanging for five, six, seven weeks. So we're just going to wrap it up next time when they go over it. The next story covered in the show is a story about a man named Walter Green. Walter lived a private, quiet life in a small apartment near downtown Omaha, Nebraska. Slight detour, guys. There is like literally nothing in Nebraska, like seriously nothing at all. But you guys, Omaha, is so nice. It is so clean and the people there are so friendly and helpful. Um, It's flatter than my dad's butt. Seriously, my dad has like an inverted bum. Um, I'm sure he's going to love that I'm outing him like this on my podcast. Uh, But Omaha, Nebraska is really, really nice. So if you ever want to go on a peaceful vacation where there's like not much adventure, but you just like want to be around friendly people who are super nice and watch sunsets in their purest form over like the plains, Omaha's your place, friend. Okay. Anyway, Walter's nickname was Curly, which I feel like back in the day, Curly was a very popular nickname. Uh, not so much anymore. Hmm, I wonder why. Uh, probably because it's terrible. Um, I don't know why. I also find it interesting that people nicknamed Curly don't normally have curly hair, or they like don't have hair at all. Actually, um, so I feel like it's kind of like a sick, twisted joke. Um, so, anyways, Curly, although he has no curls, uh, lived a simple, frugal life. He was cordial to his neighbors but kept mostly to himself and same girl, same. But on April 24th, 1978, as he trimmed rose bushes outside of his apartment complex, Curly suffered a heart attack. He died while working in the yard. Everyone who knew him was astounded to discover after his death that he had accumulated more than $200,000 by living so frugally, which I gotta be honest with you. When I read that he like had accumulated $200,000, I was like, "Mm, that doesn't really seem like very much money. So I checked to see how much it would be in 1970s money. And um, adjusted for inflation, it's more like $850,000 today. So that makes a little bit more sense why people were like so amazed and astounded. Uh, Curly left no will and his next of kin could not be found. Ten years after his death... Curley's fortune remained, at the time of this episode, the largest unclaimed estate in Nebraska history. One of his only close friends, named Katherine Salfield, says she cannot believe how he had amassed that much money over his lifetime. Josh Butler, who works as an air investigator, said that they found a coin collection and stock and real estate options in the apartment. They also discovered, much to everyone's surprise, that the apartment building that Curly lived in was actually in his name. So when his neighbors were paying rent, they were actually like paying it to him. <laughs> uh, Robert Stack uh, keeps reiterating how extraordinary it was that Curly could amass that amount of money while living frugally. And honestly, everyone in the episode really seems so shocked by this wild concept that if you make money and then you don't spend it, that you will have money. <laughs> I don't really understand why this concept is so hard to grasp or comprehend and why it would be considered extraordinary. Uh, seems like the people, Robert Sack included, sorry, Robbie, uh, need a refresher course in economics or personal finance because Yes, that is exactly how it works, sweetheart. If every month you make $8,000 and you only spend one to two of it, after a period of time, you will have a lot of money. It doesn't uh, seem like Curly was simple or uneducated after all. He was just smart. (laughs) Uh, It is shocking that no one has come out of the woodwork pretending to be his heir. I thought that was really interesting. Robert Stack says that they don't know much about Curly's early life, um, but with the help of the inheritance investigator, Josh, they are able to surmise a couple of things. So, when Curly was almost 17 years old, he hopped on a train bound for Omaha as a stowaway on the train. Um, he, hop- he hopped off in a town near the big city in a farming town named Skylar, and can we just all kind of chuckle to ourselves about how Omaha is being considered a big city. just... I think that's really funny anyways um curly immediately began looking for work um a tavern owner n- noticed curly and offered him not only a ride to town but a home-cooked meal with his family and a part-time job at his tavern curly was incredibly grateful uh, Catherine, one of the daughters of the tavern owner was only nine years old at the time that she met curly She said she doesn't know exactly why her dad brought him home for dinner that day and took him under his wing uh, the way that he did uh, because her father had never done anything like it before and had never done anything like it again. Curly had told them that he was traveling from Denver, but we don't really know if that's true. Uh, Catherine does make sure to let us know that Curly was very nice looking, easy to look at. All right, Catherine, I feel you. Just because you're nine doesn't mean you don't have eyes. Anyways, at dinner, Curly was secretive about his birthplace and his family. Curly said that he hadn't gone along with his stepdad so that he had run away. Catherine said he was very kind and well-spoken. She said he had sort of like this roundabout way of talking to get out of questions that he didn't want to answer while also like not being rude. So, for example, when her mom asked Curly what about any cousins? Do you have any of those? Curly would say, I did once. And then he would like quickly change the subject. Uh, another time, her mom asked if Curly had any brothers or sisters. And Curly replied, um, none as pretty as your daughters, ma'am. Plot twist, Curly murdered his entire family. Just kidding. <laughs> That's not what happens at all. Alright, so maybe nothing that crazy happened, but something did happen. And that is that Curly fell in love with Catherine's older sister Jessamine, and he would never, EVER feel the same way about anyone else for as long as he lived. After some time, Curly got a job working as a mechanic at a local garage. The car was still a relatively new piece of machinery back then, and Curly just had like a natural knack for understanding them and fixing them. which obviously was needed in that time. Um, in time he earned enough money to move into a boarding house. With his new salary, Curly began to court Jessamine. He only had one problem. Getting rid of Catherine. <laughs> he would give Catherine nickels and dimes to go get ice cream or to go to the movies to steal time alone and have some private moments with Jessamine. In 1917, Curley left his job as a mechanic to enlist in the army. He also left behind be- his beloved Jessamine, who went to school to be a nurse. Curley served in the military in Europe. Um, it was his job to transport the wounded and the dead to a makeshift army hospital. He was scarred, like so many of our military men and women are, uh, but when the war ended, he was hopeful. He was finally going home to Skyler, to the life that he left behind, and also to the love of his life, Jessamine. But when he returned, Jessamine was no longer living in Skyler. She had wanted bigger and better opportunities. She wanted the fancy, glamorous lifestyle. So. While Curly was away, she had packed up all of her things and moved to Omaha. Okay, girl, let's dream a little bit bigger than that. All right. Okay. Like, let's go to L.A., New York, Vegas. Come on. Anyway, Curly moved to Omaha and got a job. He wanted to be closer to Jessamine. Um, first, he worked as a mechanic there, um, as he had been doing in Schuyler, and then he worked at a newspaper, and then he worked as a night watchman for the railroad company. Um, Curly never stopped trying to pursue Jessamine, but Jessamine didn't think that Curly's education level and earning potential would be able to suit her needs. So, she married another man. And Curly never fell in love again. He never married, he never had a family. Curly spent the next sixty years alone. In all those years he never told anyone about his previous life. Besides Catherine, his only other friend was Riley, his longtime barber. And even Riley said he didn't know him very well. I mean, every once in a while, Curly would invite Riley over for coffee and they'd like kind of talk about things. Once Riley noticed pictures and some postcards intentionally displayed in Curly's home, uh, he was curious to know if they were from, you know, family, friends. So he picked one of them up and saw that it was postmarked from Brooklyn, New York. And Riley said he asked Curly about it and Curly said, never mind, and took the postcard and, like, hid it away. Riley felt like he was intruding and so he, like, didn't want to bother him and just didn't ask him or push him anymore. So, like we said before, Curly was super frugal. So go ahead and get out your notebook and a pen. Uh, because I'm about to share a very nice cooking tip slash frugality tip with you. And you're going to want to write it down for future reference. So go ahead and get it. I'll give you some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine said in the morning, uh, Curly would eat eggs. And then when he would leave for work, he would put a can of beans or chili on the pilot light. And then several hours later, by the time he came home for dinner, it would be just right to eat. Wow. That's... What a treat. Uh, Josh Butler began researching into Curly's case. He wanted to be the one who found an heir for Nebraska's largest unclaimed inheritance. He had heard stories from several people that Curly had mentioned a brother once. And Josh was able to discover um, that there was a man named Al Green who was shot and killed shortly before the 4th of July in 1921 after a quarrel near Little Crooked, Montana. It was later discovered that Al Green was not a brother after all, but actually a first cousin. So that's where that confusion, like, kind of lay. So perhaps they were, like, close enough in their childhoods that he kind of, like, referred to him as a brother in conversation. Josh wonders why Curly would accumulate so much wealth knowing that he didn't have any, like, obvious heirs and not leave any sort of, like, documentation as to where he wanted the money to go. If I had to guess, it's why we all do things like that we think we have more time and you know we're gonna get to it I've been feeling like this really strong impression for some time now that I should like make a living will um I think that it was like the pandemic that kind of like got that idea into my head and guess what I still haven't done it um I'll get to it one day probably (laughs) There are a few pictures of Curly to work with. I will post a few of them on my Instagram today. At the time the show aired, they knew he said he had been born in Kendall, Montana. Then he lived in Denver with his mom and stepdad before starting a new life in Nebraska. He received postcards from someone who lived in Brooklyn, New York, but we do not know who. None of his relatives have ever been traced. At Curly's funeral, a wreath has become the final clue to this mysterious story. A card came with a flower wreath, and it's signed Mrs. Joel Greener, Denver, Colorado. Perhaps Mrs. Greener is the key to puzzle to solving the puzzling life of Walter Curly Green. Um, And it is amazing to me that not only is this case still unsolved, but if you Google his name, there are still many active threads about this investigation, like people are trying to figure it out. And I can't believe that. So if you think you might be related to Curly, get in touch with the folks over there in Omaha. And then your next step should be to share some of the money with me. Consider it like a finder's fee, okay? I feel like the lesson we learn here is that when love is unrequited for any reason, you got to move on, okay? I mean, it seems like Curly lived such a lonely life and he didn't really need to. I mean, I'm sure if he would have looked for companionship elsewhere, he would have found it and he would have had a fulfilling life. Um if Jessamine didn't want to be with him simply because Curly was poor or ill-educated, well, Then, lady i got some bad news for you because he ended up making a lot of money so the joke's on you i guess sweetheart i don't know i don't know what to tell you in our final story we travel to rural georgia waverly georgia at the time this episode of unsolved mysteries was aired had a population of 825 residents it was a predominantly black community nestled in the bible belt lumber farming and paper mill provided this tiny town with job opportunities for its residents For years, Rising Daughters Baptist Church had served not only as a place of worship for this tight-knit community, but also as a means of socializing. This would all change, however, on March 11, 1985, when this quiet community was violated with the brutal double murder of Harold and Thelma Swain. Harold Swain was a well-loved deacon of the church, a member of the county jury commission, and a spokesperson for the black community. Thelma was also closely involved in church affairs. The two had been married for 42 years. People who knew Harold said he was jolly, loved to serve with his kindness and his actions. He would help anyone, no matter the time of day or night. He thought of himself as a servant to his fellow man, an instrument in God's hands. Same thing with Thelma. One resident and friend of the Swains said he had never attended a funeral with so many people to pay, coming to pay their respects. Um, he gets choked up when he speaks about how well loved they were by the community at large. Like I said, on March 11th, that's when everything went down. Thelma and Harold were hosting their weekly Bible study at the church. There were nine women in attendance that night. Harold had just finished praying, and by 50 one of the patrons um, needed to leave early. When she left, she saw a man in the lobby. She asked him if he needed any help. He said yes. He needed to speak to someone who was in there. She asked him, who do you need to talk to? And he pointed to Harold. She said, sure, I'll go get him for you. The man was young and white. She got Harold to come out, and then, you know, she needed to leave, so she left. Shortly after, a scuffle ensued in the lobby. Then, gunshots were fired. Thelma ran out to check on her husband. She, too, was also shot. The other women rushed into the pastor's office to call the police, but the phone line had been cut. After waiting 20 minutes, one of the women made a dash to her car and got help. Sheriff Bill Smith and the Swains were close friends. He said that the Swains were highly respected people in the community, so when he got to the scene, there was a lot of sadness, confusion, grief, despair. No one had heard the two people in the lobby exchange words, and no one seemed to recognize the man, so it was difficult to know what the motive for such a crime would be. They say there just really wasn't any reason for the Swains to be a victim of a murder plot, and to that i just don't think that's accurate do i believe that the swains were involved in criminal activity absolutely not but uh they're black people for starters in rural georgia where racial tensions are notoriously known uh for not being the best uh it was said that he was a spokesperson for the black community which could have made some racist white people like you know I could have like ruffled their britches or whatever, um, or given them reason to go to like ridiculous measures to get him to be quiet. I mean, I don't understand why they're like, there's no way. Um, also, uh, Harold was on the jury commission, so maybe he made some enemies from bad guys while serving on it. I mean, do you know what I mean? I think that these reasons warrant a further investigation. Okay. Apparently there was a lot of physical evidence at the scene. Bullet casings and two pairs of glasses. One, they were able to uh, determine belonged to Harold. The other set of glasses, they haven't been able to prove who they belong to. The sheriff's first thought was that this person, this person who had killed the Swains, was a transient. Uh, the unknown glasses were able to see them in the episode. They are not nice. It seems like someone who owns these pair of glasses probably didn't have a lot of money to properly maintain glasses or get like new glasses when they needed them. Um, And so the question is, were these glasses dropped by the killer? Rising Daughters Church is located on busy Route 17. There were many transients in the area who hoped for handouts. Uh, The only problem is if robbery or money was the main motive, then why was $300 left in Harold Swain's shirt pocket other evidence suggests that the shooting was not a crime of opportunity but premeditated they actually have evidence that showed that the church was cased before the attack Um, if you remember the phone line had been cut there probably were like some footprints Uh, someone knew the group met there every tuesday the woman who left the church early said that the man was calm she thought that he was possibly there searching for a handout some food some money he didn't seem like anyone who would you know Want to hurt anyone. Um, he had on scuffed boots and she had not noticed a weapon on him. An artist was brought in to offer a composite drawing, but so far this sketch hasn't really given them any leads. A few months later, a car was pulled over by police um, nearly 125 miles away. Inside the trunk of that car were several unlicensed semi-automatic weapons. Three men were taken into custody. One of these men was Donnie Barentine. Donnie had apparently told people in Florida at a bar that he had murdered a black preacher and his wife in Georgia. After some interrogation, Donnie admitted that he had, in fact, told the people in Florida these things, and then he just smiled and told the police that he lied to those people. And the police never have been able to make any connections between Donnie and the crime. Donnie Barentine was given a polygraph test, which he completely bombed. Uh, the polygraph administrator told police that he had never seen such a poor test and that they should consider him a very good suspect in this case. Uh, the sketch looks a little bit like Donnie. Um, I'll post the picture of it on my Instagram so you can like judge it for yourself. Um, because the sketch and Donnie were so inconclusive, the Jacksonville police department flew out witnesses from Georgia to do a police lineup. Uh, the woman who left church early that night said that she didn't recognize any of the men in the lineup. Um, you have to remember that the man she saw that night had long hair and now all of the men in the line, in the lineup had short hair. Uh, but she said that the boots of one man looked very familiar. Those scuffed boots that she referenced earlier. The murder charges against Donnie were dropped. One year later, the police went in a new direction, Uh, The police had received a pamphlet with a composite sketch in it. The man they were being told to look out for had attempted to rob a church in Kansas, but had fled. The KBI has still never developed any leads other than he drove an older car with Florida tags on it. And you know what's close to Florida? Georgia. The sheriff said he believes it was a transient, but the Georgia Bureau of Investigation believes the intent was murder, not robbery. The sheriff says he'll never forget this case. He drives past Rising Daughters every day on his way home from work, and there isn't a time he sees the building that he isn't reminded of his friends, the Swains. Breaking news! Fifteen years after the murder, Dennis Arnold Perry, who had a grudge against Harold, pled guilty to the Swain murders and was given two consecutive Life sentences. However, in 2020, DNA evidence pointed to a different suspect, and Perry's conviction was overturned. He has since been released and is currently on bond. Another update Another update which they failed to mention is the fact that a single hair from the scene is what got Dennis, who had spent 20 years in prison, released. This hair belonged to Gladys Spar. Days after Gladys provided the hair sample which implicated her own son, Eric Spar, as a suspect, she was found dead in her home. At the time of the article I found, the police had not confirmed nor denied whether they believed foul play was at all involved in her death. Eric Sparr, who was a white male, was a subject of the investigation earlier on, but he was never prosecuted after offering an alibi. The case went cold, but then in 1998, the investigation was reworked and soon Perry became the focus. Someone who testified against Perry was paid $12,000 by the Camden County District Attorney's Office as a reward for her testimony, but the judge, jury, and the defense were never made aware of this reward. Obviously, this is is like essentially a bribe and not okay at all. Uh, Eric Spahr first became a suspect in 1986 when the father of his ex-wife shared a recorded phone call with law enforcement in which he bragged, quote, I'm the mother effer who killed two racial epithets in that church and I'm going to kill you and the whole damn family even if I have to do it in a church, end quote. A little on the nose, Um, according to a motion for a new trial filed on Perry's behalf, which was obtained by People Magazine. Police were also told by his wife at the time that Eric wore a pair of glasses that had been welded out of three different pairs of glasses. Sounds a little bit like the unique pair of glasses found at the scene, doesn't it? Uh, These also happened to be glasses that held two distinct hairs in one of the hinges. Also, remember earlier when I mentioned I thought the crime seemed to be, at least to me, racially motivated, especially considering the racial tensions that were and continue to be in the South? I mean, it's everywhere. Racial tensions and racism is everywhere. But I feel like the South is just, like, notorious for it, I guess. Um, I did some research, and it turns out... It was well known that Eric Spar was a racist and a white supremacist. He despised police officers of color and yelled racial epithets to them all the time. Um, his 15 or 20 acre farm bordered the land of the Rising Daughters Chapel. So I would imagine that they would, I don't know, bump into each other, butt heads or, you know, have words every now and again. Uh, this is the angle the prosecution plans to use in their case against him. They believe Eric Spar went to church to quiet Harold Swain once and for all because, you know, Harold Swain is probably saying some things he didn't like. And when people say things you don't like, the obvious answer is to just like murder them viciously and brutally, right? Wrong. Uh, so yeah, as predicted, I would imagine in this tiny southern rural town Um, being a spokesperson for Black people, if you're a white supremacist, probably ruffle some feathers. Get your panties in a bunch. Uh, The last update was on July 21st of this year, so only time will tell what is going to come of this information. I truly hope that whoever committed these heinous murders is brought to justice once and for all. I feel bad for Perry, who paid the price for 20 years for something that he, you know, doesn't seem like he did. I mean, I know that he probably did some shady things, which is most likely what got him on the police's radar in the first place, but he didn't kill the Swains and he lost two decades of his life for it. So that's not very fair. What do you make of these three unsolved cases? I would love to know your thoughts, theories, opinions, and comments about what you think share them with me on my Instagram page at mystery still unsolved shameless plug and also be sure to look at the photos of these cases and look at my stories for some more information thank you so much for joining me this week I really appreciate you being here do you want to know more ways to help support my podcast of course you do Follow me on Instagram at still unsolved. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Tell a fellow true crime-loving friend or family member about me and the best way. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?